Hi everyone, hope you're all well after what's been a traumatic week that really has made us all think about what our wonderful game means to us and to what we're, what extent we're prepared to do or not do as the case may be to keep it healthy and in a manner that helps keep its future intact for generations to come. We've got Southampton next, and I'm privileged again to welcome as a guest someone who not only supported Tottenham Hotspur as a child, but was lucky enough to be present at the centenary final in 1981. I warned you last week, it's Matt Letizia, who very nearly joined us in 1990, but decided to stay where he was at Southampton and explain some of his reasoning for that decision. I've cheated a bit as um, we did this podcast last night, um, as I was invited onto another podcast where Matt was also a guest called Smith Must Score, which is three friends led by Michael Channon, son of Mickey, Mick, um, the others being Stig and Marvin, who look back into their childhood at the FA Cup finals year by year, which had such an effect on us all. And nobody could, you just couldn't wait for the cup final to come and discuss various aspects, characters, and bring some life back into the FA Cup competition. And therefore I took the chance to speak to Matt for our podcast, of course, too good a chance to miss. Tom has kindly edited it. Um, not an easy job, I would say, uh, but it's a good listen, hopefully. With some fantastic memories for us in slightly depressing times at the moment. Anyway, thanks, Tom. And please enjoy my talk with the wonderful player that is Matt Letissier, who had a terrific style of play and also ethics and carried that uh, over into his next life after football playing finished with regard to being a Sky TV pundit. And I've heard him do a couple of talks that were incredibly entertaining and funny. So um, a, good, a good way of being an ex-player and paying respect to the game, I think. So... Have a listen, and um, I'm going to speak after the video's finished. Great pleasure to introduce uh, listeners to the great Matt Letizier. And in a Spurs podcast, I'm really, really happy to say that Matt, in his younger days, was a Spurs supporter. Now, Anyone who's read his book would know that. But uh, Matt, we're really happy to invite you on to the Steve Perryman podcast. And uh, can you just tell us a little bit about your the background to your support of the, the famous mighty Tottenham Hotspur? <laughs> yeah, absolutely, mate. Now, my, um, uh, my dad was a, a, well, still is a, a big Spurs fan. 
Um, and I grew up in the, you know, in the mid seventies and uh, watching yourself and, uh, and your esteemed teammates, but one of them caught my eye in particular. Uh, and it, it, it's been no surprise and, and well-documented that, uh, that Glenn Hoddle has been my hero. Um, you know, he was somebody that uh, who I just thought made the game of football look so easy and so graceful. Um, and uh, yeah, Glenn was was obviously a huge reason uh, alongside my dad uh, as to why I was a why I was a Spurs supporter as a, as a kid growing up. So yeah, it was just um, it was fantastic. You know, watching the uh, the, the entertainment that I was getting from uh, from the Spurs team back then. Um, you know, we're just seeing the the goals on match of the day that Glenn would score. And then obviously Aussie and Ricky came in in 1978. That was the first World Cup that I remember watching as a kid. I was a bit young to remember 74, but 78 with the with the ticker tape reception for the teams. And uh, and then obviously seeing Aussie and Ricky come in was just like, wow, this was seismic for football. You know, two World yeah. Cup winners and they're coming in to play in the first division and they were signing for my team. Um, so, yeah, that was a... A pretty special time, and I'm sure you had a, a fantastic time playing alongside those boys. For sure. Um, I know a little bit about your background, obviously, and we're, we're not too dissimilar. Brought up, um, you were youngest of four or five? Four, yeah, youngest of four. Young, I'm youngest of three. Both brought up on a council estate, yeah. but very happy childhood. I know that Indeed. about about you and um and in a certain way pulled along by our elder brothers because they're the Absolutely. ones who sort of have to look after you to take you to games and school matches and various places so um i was very lucky matt that my eldest brother four years older um said to me at about 10 11 years of age um steve you need to know that if you tell a player in your team what you think he should do, not that he's got to do it, but you give him a, an option of what you think he should do or where he should pass the ball or there's a man on or he can turn, it makes you a better player without even touching the ball. And I think that was such... Yeah, great such, advice. What advice. So so if I was 11, my eldest brother, Ted, was 15. Wow, what advice that is. He, he wasn't a coach, obviously, not old enough. Wow. He wasn't a teacher. He was still at school himself. So, so but the, the, the killer quote was, Steve, not because your mate is a bad player, not because you're better than him, but because none of us have got eyes in the back of our head. So older brothers... How great are they for you? Do you remember? <laughs> do you remember some bit of advice or something from an older brother? Well, actually, I, I probably I've always felt like um, growing up, I had a bit of an advantage over everyone else because I used to play with my older brothers and their mates, and so oh. my older brothers were uh, four, six, and seven years older than me. Okay, um, and I, I, I've always felt like growing up playing with bigger, older kids made me a much better player quicker. Yes. Um, I think I learned so much, you know, having to, to try and get the better of somebody who is physically taller than you, quicker than you and stronger than you. And you have to try and work out a way to get around him. Uh, and uh, I think doing that as a kid, and I found ways to, to do that. I was tricky. I had great ball control um, and I learned so much 
playing against those those older guys. And and I think that's what made my game develop a lot quicker than than perhaps my my peers of my age at that time. Because growing up in Guernsey, I kind of in my age group, um, I was I was pretty much head and shoulders above everybody else. I mean, I know, I know football. There's not not that big a community in Guernsey to sure. to choose from when it comes to football. But I was uh, I was kind of head and shoulders above everyone else, and I think those those games with my older brothers would always help me. And and two of my brothers were actually good enough uh, that they were offered um, contracts at professional football clubs, um, okay. uh, and both of them turned it down. Which me growing up as a as a young lad, I'm looking at that thinking, "Wow, what are you doing? You got a chance to be a footballer, and you're turning it down." <laughs> Uh, you know, my, my brother Kevin had a, had a, was offered a pro contract at Oxford at the age of 19. My brother Carl was offered an apprenticeship at Southampton uh, at the wow. age of 16. Um, and both of them turned down because they didn't want to leave the island and they got homesick. So I think more than any advice that I was ever given, I think seeing them turn down their opportunities yeah. of professional footballers spurred me on more than anything else I could have imagined. Brilliant. They, um, someone said to me one day, Steve, we are a product of our surrounding. So, Steve, you had two, two older brothers. So I, I think I was telling them about we used to go to QPR one week and Brentford the next in the old third division. So he said, supposing your two brothers would say to you, Steve, come on, we're going to go and raid the sweet shop. Instead of saying, come on, we're going to go to a football match you may have turned out in a different, a different way. And therefore, you know, the, the lack of what we've all been given is that you, you were the youngest, I was the youngest, and you played with older boys, I played with older boys, so we've had virtually the same story. Yeah. And how lucky are we that, you know, if we'd have been the oldest of the boys, maybe it doesn't quite happen, maybe. Yeah, it does. Very much so. Very much so. I think it's um, you are very much a product of the people that you surround yourself with at a young age. And uh, I was quite. Lucky. And you don't choose those. You don't choose. No, exactly. those. They're chosen for you. Yeah, exactly right. And uh, I, I was quite fortunate that uh, that none of my brothers were real uh, were real troublemakers. Uh, <laughs> villains. I mean, no villains. Uh, no villain. I mean, Kevin was a bit of a bit of a rascal, but not really a villain. Uh, <laughs> Love it. Love it. But no, and growing up in Guernsey is there's not really you know the crime rate was next to zero, so yes. it was uh, it was a lovely, yes. safe place to grow up. Fantastic. Love it. And um, being a Spurs supporter, um, it followed on that you ended up. Did you ever go to Spurs home games? No, I, I only uh, the first game I went to. Um, Funny enough, was the 1981 FA Cup final, um, <laughs> which uh, just was a was a complete surprise for me. My, my I came home from school on a Friday lunchtime. My dad surprised me with the airline tickets and went, "Son, we're going to uh, we're going to London this afternoon. You don't have to go back to school, and we're going to go and watch the cup final." Uh, you know, I'm 12 years of age, and this was just a dream come true for me. I was just so excited. I can't tell you. Um, so that weekend was a, was amazing for me. Um, obviously watching Glenn take that free kick, Tommy Hutchinson get his shoulder on it and, and get the deflection for the replay. Um, and so, you know, that, that was just amazing. So I didn't really go to the Spurs home games. And in fact, I think the next time I saw Spurs live was actually um, when I was, uh, I watched them play at the, at the Dell 
against Southampton. Uh, and uh, I think it was, we were, uh, Guernsey under-15s had come to Hampshire to play yes. uh, series of games. And we were taken to the, the Southampton Spurs game as a, as a little treat. Okay. And so we were behind, I'll never forget, we were behind the goal in the Milton Road end in, in with all the Southampton fans and Spurs scored in that goal and went and won the game 1-0. And I think okay. I was the only bloke behind the goal who started cheering. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. I, I have a little story about the 81 final, which turned out to be a really disappointment. To put it in context, we, mid-70s, we got relegated, rebuilt in the old second division, came back, signed the two Argentinians that you mentioned earlier. And then it didn't quite go how everyone thought it was going to go because it's more than signing two exceptional players. There's, yeah. a, there's, there's a few more in the team. So to actually get to the final in 81 was such a, a moment where we could get back on the stage. We were back in the first division, but we weren't back on the stage where the previous Tottenham's famous Tottenham teams had been. So I think that pressure sort of grew on us. And um, we, we sort of died on the day. It, it was like uh, we, we were the strong favourites. It was the footballers against the workers. And they played better than we did. <laughs> so, so it was a complete turnaround. And someone like Jerry Gow, for instance, who ran his legs off, and yeah. made life very difficult for Glenn and Ozzy and Ricky and uh, just overpowered us in midfield. And, and as you said, quite rightly said, the lucky goal that got us equaliser. But the, the, the funny story is that my brother, again, the same one, Ted, the oldest one, he doesn't live at my parents' house, but he drives to my parents' house because we live about 10 minutes away from Wembley. And my uh, son, three years old, was there being looked after by my mum. And he said, what's he doing here? Well, they, I suppose they haven't got a ticket for him. I'm looking after him. You don't need a ticket. He's three years old. Well, Ted, if you think you can take him, take him. So my brother <laughs> takes him. I don't know about kids' car seats or anything like that. Anyway, takes him. And my brother always parked miles and miles and miles away from a stadium. He just had this thing. He had to run there after a game back to his car. I don't know why. Anyway, so he takes my son and he's taking the camera with him. And he stood in front of the Twin Towers and he said to this group of chaps waiting for the game, could you take a picture of me and this young child? Put him on his shoulders. And they said, well, he's not got colours on. So they put Man City hat and scarf on him because they were Man City people. So I have this wonderful photo of my son, Glenn, on my brother's shoulders in Man City gear. <laughs> I said, Ted, what did you say to them when you give them the stuff back? He said, thank you very much. That's much appreciated. Thanks for taking the photo. There's your stuff back. And um, I, I need to tell you, this is the son of the captain of the team that's playing against you, which they all found, <laughs> they all found hilarious. So you, you can imagine. So, so you didn't go to the replay? Uh, no, so we, we didn't have tickets for the replay. Flew back home on the Sunday and uh, I remember being uh, very excited and, uh, and sitting at home 
making a, a very nice comfy chair for myself to watch the to watch the replay and uh, and all that unfolded in that game which was uh, which was obviously incredible the turnaround in a few days for for what happened to Ricky uh, you know the the yeah. trudging off the pitch after uh, what was it 65 70 minutes um, and then for that to for that to then come and just turn around in the space of a few days to what he did in that uh, in that replay was just incredible i said to ricky once ricky tell me about your upbringing you know how, how did you practice football and stuff so he said well i lived on a farm on a ranch and the only the only practice i did steve was there's some trees and I used to run in and out the trees. And I used to do it every day, probably an hour or one and a half hours in and out the trees. And it was, I never played 11 v 11 until I was 13, 14 and went to the bigger school. And when I went to the bigger school, it's further away. And I used to have to ride a horse there. <laughs> Brilliant. Wow. This is this is new. So I'm playing now 11 v 11, unusually. And the teacher is uh, shouting at me, Ricky, Ricky, pass it. Just pass it, Ricky, pass. And I'm thinking, what's this pass? <laughs> I just run with a ball. That's what I do. <laughs> so that famous goal reverted right back to his younger days. Wow. Um, how amazing is that? Brilliant. Absolutely. How amazing Brilliant. is that? So between the games, we didn't do a lot. And uh, the first game is full of pomp and ceremony. We had the chap come from the FA to our hotel on the Thursday and told us that we were allowed on the to look at the pitch between two two o'clock and 203 we had to have a collar and tie and a jacket on wow uh no warm-up on the pitch not allowed because <laughs> it was all about the band and the singing and the of course this is a, a major day so you almost felt like you didn't really deserve to be there <laughs> <laughs> you always felt like an inconvenience. Yeah, but and of course you do deserve to be there because you've won, you've got through. So um, the second game, there was no pomp, there was no ceremony. You could go out on the pitch naked if you wanted to. <laughs> you could warm up as you'd done all your career, warm up before you before you play. So it was much more back to normal. And uh, I think the quality of the game from both sides showed that fact that it was all the tension. You do you remember in the first game how many of us got cramped? Yeah. In the extra time, I think there was only about four players on the pitch who didn't get cramped. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, which, which is amazing. And, and someone like yourself over from Guernsey, I mean, did you fly? Yeah, yeah, we flew over on the, on the Friday afternoon, and um, I think we. It, Dad went out with all his mates on the Friday night, dragged me along. I sat in the corner of the pub, I think, with a packet of crisps and a bottle of Coke. And uh, all did. In and those they, they got drunk. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> <laughs> but for instance, you didn't have to rush to get a flight because the extra time and all that stuff. Ah, uh, yeah, we didn't fly back till the Sunday anyway, so okay. we were okay. We, yeah, we were all good with the extra time and stuff. Yeah, I was just a bit gutted that uh, 
that uh, we, we couldn't actually stay. We, my dad did did think about st actually staying until the Thursday and trying to get some tickets for the Thursday night. And uh, obviously that, that, that would have meant me missing the whole week of school. I would have been very excited. Yeah. So for the second game, tickets were a lot easier to come by. Yeah, I'm sure. There's so many sort of extras there on the first game. Now they all disappear because it's gone. It's finished. So how so many did you get for that second game? Us personally? Yeah. I think we got 100 each. Wow. And um, But this was the chance where you could invite everyone who asked you. Everyone. Yeah. And, you know, I've got, uh, I've got family down in the south coast, Gosport. They would love to come and watch us play. And, of course, they couldn't get to the first final. So uh, with 100 tickets, you're just, I mean, you're not throwing them away, but it's a great chance for them to see you. Uh, maybe the pinnacle of your career. You know, although well, you, you said that I played for England, well, I did, but I didn't. And uh, so, you know, to captain your team at Wembley, you'd, you'd want everyone to be there that knew you. And um, at the fact that I lived about 10 minutes away from Wembley, I used to drive past Wembley every single day to Tottenham on the North Circular. I yeah. used to look at the stadium and think, am I ever going <laughs> to, are we ever going to get there? Although I did in my early career in two League Cup finals. But, um, but yeah, so, but great times. And then, of course, we get there for the second year. And then, as, as more relaxed as we were for the replay, Man City, now we're even a bit more relaxed. And actually, we're a better team now. That, that 81 year, I think we finished 10th. I, think, I thought there was a bigger gap between us and uh, Man City, but we were, I've written it down somewhere, we were 10th and they were 12th. So it wasn't a great gap. Okay. But the next season, we finished 4th. And so we were becoming a good team now, sort of just threatening to do things. And I suppose we were going for four trophies and ended up only winning the FA Cup only. Um, Semi-final of the Cup Winners' Cup, European, lost in Barcelona. Um, we're leading Liverpool for 87 minutes in the League Cup final. And looked like we were going for the, for the championship, the, the title, yeah, which unheard of really so um um but the problem with that season was we played the last 10 league games in 23 days wow i think i, rem I think i remember that actually that, yeah that was, yeah. That was pretty tough on you boys there uh, yeah. a lot of you started a lot of those matches as well it wasn't big squads back then was it yeah well i played 42 out of 42 games so i obviously played those 10 incredible and i we, we played um ipswich on the monday night uh, at Ipswich and I ended up pulling my th uh, thigh muscle must have been out of some tiredness must have been because yeah. I, ne I never got injured mm. so um, you don't I, play 866 games when you're injury prone that's for sure no 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 so anyway I ended up going to to Harley Street and getting an injection which I never did before or after and uh, I think four of us had a fitness test on the Saturday morning. We, we actually played against the reserves. We played a 20-minute game at Cheson, which was only about five minutes from the hotel that we sort of took over. Yeah. And um, 
I think it was me, Tony Garvin, and two more. Anyway, we all said we're fine. It's a cup final after all. <laughs> of course yes. you are. And um, anyway, so Terry Venables, great coach, you know, you know, and he made life difficult for us. We yeah. probably should have won the first game, but uh, although we won the second game, they were they were more than worthy, more than worthy of, of maybe beating us, uh, but didn't quite do it. So, um, so yeah, so that gave me the opportunity to uh, pick the cup up two years on the spin, and. I think I saw a piece of film that your chap sent to me and it said that I was the third man in the century to do that. Wow. Um, uh, Blanche Flair was one and Joe Harvey of Newcastle in the 50s. So having thought I was never actually going to get there, like <laughs> buses, they come along. <laughs> they come along again. But anyway, we, although we didn't win it in such style, it was great to be there again and, and win it. So we ended up playing at uh, Wembley seven times in 18 months. Two wow. FA Cups, two replays, two charity shields and Liverpool in the League Cup final. And um, so great times for us. Of course, Aussie didn't play in the second game. And you, you spoke earlier about, I heard you, um, you liked Aussie as a player. Yeah, fantastic. Footballer, such a clever little footballer. Um, you know, very different to to the style that Glenn played in, but uh, but just as effective, I thought. And uh, uh, yeah, it was. He just uh, because of his frame uh, and because of his slightness, um, it's always harder, I find, for for those kind of players to to really make a mark on a football match. And you have to be when you're that kind of frame. You have to be pretty special. Uh, as a footballer to to have big impacts in football matches and he was able to do that and I, I just I just love the way he, he made the game again like Glenn like anyone really in, in professional sport when you're at the top of your game you you kind of it, the game looks easy and that's what kind of shows you the class of people I think when they get to the top and they're playing games uh, and they just make it look uh, and you know it's not easy you know it's a difficult game sure. but they make it look easy they're just so natural yeah his brain his brain was magnificent yeah you know he would never he certainly wouldn't ever call himself a defender but he did more good defensive work simply because he wanted to get the ball yeah and i always said that Aussie never passed the ball over 15 yards unlike glenn going yeah. 60 yards to tony galvin go and have a run on that tone Ozzy would never kick the ball over 15 metres because he knew it would take longer to get back to him. <laughs> so he gave Very you the true. ball, he, he lent it to you. He just lent it, it to people, yeah. Yeah, but he was he was um, a lot more physic, uh, mentally strong than Ricky. Ricky, yes. Ricky prob when, when they both come to us, they joined us in a soccer camp in Holland. And... Um, after about two days, we all decided that Ricky was the best bet of the two players. Although we didn't really know him because we knew Ozzy from the World Cup and he was one of the best players in that World Cup, wasn't he? Yeah. And um, we, as we do, I don't know if you still did it in your time, but we did lots of sit-ups and stuff and Ozzy went, no, we, we, <laughs> we, we don't do. No, we don't do. No. Anyway, so... He convinced everyone that they 
they didn't do setups. And um, six months later, we we read Manotti's diary of how he prepared that team. <laughs> And they did thousands upon thousands <laughs> upon thousands. And of course, the little sod was lying to us. And of course, they did set outs. But probably having done so many to prepare for the World Cup, which they won, they didn't need to do the ones that we were doing. So um, but great. But, to, you know, to, to, and, and Matt, did you, ever, did you ever have a feeling that you were going to sign for Tottenham? Um, yeah, well, I... I I very nearly did. In fact, I I, I did sign a contract of sorts um, uh, when I spoke to um, when I spoke to Spurs in 1990, um, and they were the Spurs was the only club I actually ever spoke to um, in okay. my in all the time at Southampton. There were other clubs that were interested, um, but I didn't even bother speaking to them. And yeah, Spurs was the only one I think that, that would have tempted me away from from Southampton. Uh, and it and it was very close, and it was probably you know only because of um, family reasons at the time uh, that I decided to to stay at Southampton. Yeah, and and now yeah. we have Harry. Everyone's talking about when is he going to go? Should he go? Shouldn't he go? Etc. It comes to more for some some. I was talking about some of us because I was loyal to my team as well as you were. Yeah. Um, but it's it's surely it's about are your family happy where they are, and that no, sort that's of exactly stuff. right. It's exactly right, Steve. I think when when people are discussing about players' futures, um, I think sometimes they they just kind of get a bit blinkered uh, and think only in terms of football, 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 yeah. um, and they don't they don't tend to give any consideration. Uh, to the fact that you know the, these guys have families, and, and you know they yeah. might have, they might, they might all want to be near their family. You know, their, their close yeah. relatives in the area. You know, and none of this is kind of taken into consideration. It's just like this tunnel vision about football and trophies and money. Um, and certainly for me, and I'm, and I'm sure for you, uh, life was about more than than just football for for us. I think the the quality of life as a whole, not just in your job. It's something that you have to take into consideration when you make any decisions about what's going on in your life. So, um, exactly so yeah, right. I, I, for me, uh, it, it was always, you know, am I am I happy? Is the is the the first consideration not how much money am I going to be earning? Can I can I win a trophy? Uh, sure. It was always it was always what makes you happy. Yeah, Matt, thank you for this talk. Much appreciated. You've. Uh... You've given the Spurs supporters that follow my podcast uh, an idea of how you followed from the distance that you did, followed the, the, the team's uh, exploits. Um, well done for your choice on players, by the way. Glenn and Ozzy were just two. <laughs> I, I really did. I am so proud that I ended up playing with them. And I, I normally talk about, although I was the captain, and therefore, I led certain things. If, if we were going to talk about the 100 tickets, that's down to me. If we're, <laughs> if, we're talking, if we're talking about such things like that. But on the field, we had an, an 82, by the way. We, um, Melia Alexic was 81. We signed Ray Clements for 82. Yeah. Imagine Ray keeping quiet on things. <laughs> not, a, not a chance. No. And, 
And, but in play, Glenn and Ozzy led the team. They led the team in play. Absolutely. So we sort of had the, we had the bases covered, if you know what I mean. And, and sometimes I look at teams. This is not a particular dig at Tottenham these days. But I look at teams and I, I actually don't know who the captain is. Yeah, no, I know, I know exactly what you mean. There's, there's a distinct lack of real leaders in amongst the, the Premier League as a whole, yeah. uh, really, when you compare it to, to, to yeah. eras gone by. Well, they didn't have a 14-year-old brother who said to them, yeah. Steve, listen. And actually, there's a power in that because as soon as you... He said to me, if they don't hear you or it doesn't enter them, what you're saying, turn... Don't get upset because when you're going to receive the ball, there's a lot of things going on in your head. So maybe you you don't hear things going on around you. So um, what great advice though. I I the fact I had that sort of captaincy string to my bow made me a bit more selectable than without it. Of course, yeah, can, of course, can you run? Yeah, can you control it? It's a very good quality to, to have in your squad and, and for a manager to be able to rely on. Mick, you had Mick Mills at uh, Southampton, or was that uh, Mick was you? just a bit before my time, yeah. It was a couple of years before I started, Mick. Okay. So yeah. he, was, he was a good leader, Mick yeah. Mills. So I, I, kinda, I came into the team. Uh, so when I first got in the Southampton team, it was um, uh, Peter Shilton was in there, uh, Nick Holmes. Um, yeah. Kevin Kevin Bond at the back. Jimmy Case was in midfield. So, Jimmy you know, Case. all these guys that were were real leaders on the pitch. You know, Glenn yeah. Coffell, David Armstrong. Yes. You know, experienced pros. So, good yeah, players. We, have, we have plenty. A lot of good players. Well, thank you for spending your time with us. It's been a, a delight to listen to you. And we wish you good luck for the future. And your team's just lost at Wembley, um, unfortunately. And... Our team are going to play there, okay, not the next game, but on Sunday, and we hope that they don't lose, especially as we're managerless. But yeah. uh, that, that's a whole nother story, so let's, let's not go there. But thank you very much. Much appreciated. Pleasure, Steve. Good to talk to you, mate. And good luck to you. Good luck to you, too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So, again, just to explain, Tom has been kindly um, spending some time for us doing the editing for, for that talk last night. And um, hopefully you enjoyed it. Uh, so I can't leave this podcast without mentioning the, the leaving of Jose Mourinho from our great club. Um, I had very few dealings with him. I think I told you about having a, getting a phone call from him about Ollie Watkins looking for an opinion on his style of play if, if that style fitted into Tottenham and, and of course it didn't happen and I, I really don't know and, and shouldn't know the reason for not taking him and and um, so Oli decided to go to Aston Villa all I do know is that from Oli's perspective I not that I uh, advised him in any way but had he signed for Tottenham, would he have sat on the bench for most of this season instead of being in somebody's first team, scoring lots of goals and making a name for himself and now being in the England team? So 
it works both ways, these things. And uh, I wish Tottenham had signed him, of course, but uh, happy for the lad that he's he's made a good decision for himself and, and uh, is very happy where he is. Um, so in, in dealing with uh, Jose, he was incredibly respectful to me, uh, which I thank him for. And do you know what? I'm not going to I'm not going to uh, poke him or dig the knife in because I I've been on the end of that um, sacking at Tottenham Hotspur, albeit not with these these particular owners. But uh, and of course, I think the depth of my love for Tottenham Hotspur would obviously go deeper than Jose's because of, of the time I spent there. And um, so you never know what's happening behind the scenes. You never know how much support you get, the manager gets. You never know um, if there's outside influences, outside opinions being sought that work against yours, the decision makers. I'm talking about Ozzy and myself. And therefore, um, I've sort of explained it in my book to go as far as I could without being sued because I was advised to sort of take the foot off the pedal in terms of my criticisms of that regime. But uh, you never, ever know the smooth running or not behind the scenes and what's happening in the dressing room, etc. Now this is affected by decisions that are made way above your head that, that has nothing to do with you whether the manager's backed or not when signing players or pushed into certain players or certain agents. And therefore, I will never know that about Jose. And what I, what I can say is that I think his style of football did not suit and did not match up with Tottenham Hotspur, what we're all used to, what we've come to be known for. And therefore, it looked like an appointment that was purely res done on results and to win a trophy. So with regard to the winning a trophy, that seems a strange time to sack someone a week before the, the chance to win a trophy. But again, you never know what's happening behind the scenes. And um, so it is what it is. Uh, the the results and the performances didn't match up to what a lot of us wanted, and therefore um, Jose and his troops were were allowed to leave. So I wish them good luck in the future. I'm sure he won't struggle, uh, or any of them will struggle. And uh, Tom has, has told me today uh, that Ryan Mason's been confirmed as interim head coach at Spurs, aided by Chris Powell, who I tried to sign once as a left-back for Watford. I wanted him at Watford, and he was playing for Southend at the time. And Nigel Gibbs, who did play for me at Watford, right back, a very solid, solid individual. Uh, Michael Vaughan, I don't know who's um, going to be the goalkeeper coach until the end of the season. And Ledley King, I'm pleased to say, continues as one of the staff coaches. So good luck to all of those, especially for Sunday's game that's coming up, but we're going to do a podcast before that. 
and uh, we can talk more about that game then. So thank you very much for listening and thank you, Tom, once again. So one, yeah, once again, Howard has been um, replaced by a superstar. So Howard, when you listen to this, um, you know, it takes a good player, Sunes number one and Matt Letizia number two to replace you. So Howard will be back in play, back in the chair, giving us details of, um, of how he looks at the game for um, previous Man City games and also um, things that we need to know about before the game. So thanks for listening and come on you Spurs! Mm-hmm.